Welcome to Cordell and Cordell's Men's Divorce Podcast, moderated by managing partner and CEO Scott Trout, bringing you information for guys before, during, and after divorce, and everything related to family law. This podcast is not to be taken as legal advice, and no attorney-client relationship is established. Hey, welcome back to the Men's Divorce and Cordell and Cordell podcast. I'm Scott Trout, Managing Partner, CEO of Cordell and Cordell. And today we're going to talk about a topic that we haven't actually done anything on in probably the three years we've been doing this, which is great, exciting. But before we get into that, as always, again, not legal advice. We want to bring you information, education, kind of give you the tools the issues necessary to have a conversation with an attorney who practices exclusively in family law like we do at Cordell and Cordell. And speaking of that, you want to schedule a consultation. That's the only way to get legal advice. And that is can be done on our website at CordellCordell.com. There's a calendar. It's interactive. You can schedule a consult right there. Don't even have to pick up the phone. You put in your zip code or your address. It'll find an office near you and give you some available times. You can do it in person on the phone or Zoom, whatever's easier for you. Or you can give us a call, 866-DADS-LAW, 866-DADS-LAW. So today, talking about appeals, I'm joined by our attorney in Ohio, Danielle. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. So um, on appeals and why this is a great topic for you, particularly at Cordell, we have an appeals team which I think is unique. We try to provide a kind of a full service experience, not just when we're handling your case at the trial level or beginning or consulting, but afterwards. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the Cordell appellate team, because that's a unique uh, feature that I don't see a lot of. Yeah, definitely. It is unique to Cordell. I have been to other law firms. They do not have this service. So there are 12 of us across the company, across all of our, you know, 35 states, everywhere we represent. And we are here to assist your attorney in providing the best appellate experiences we can, reviewing the briefs, which we're going to go over here with Scott, reviewing the process, making sure we've covered all of our bases. And then in the in the case where the trial attorney hasn't done appeals, we're also able to step in and provide that service. Uh, although we don't have an appellate attorney in all 50 states, we do what's called pro hoc vice, which means we we do jump into your state and your attorney can sponsor us. And we talk to you, we talk to you with your attorney from your state, and we make sure that we can provide all the you know utilities that you would expect from a company like us so that we can make sure that we not only litigate your case to the, you know, the best possible, but that we also follow through and follow the process through the appellate court, because that does happen in some cases. Mm -hmm. You know, appellate work is so important. I love it. I've been doing appellate work for many years. This is my 31st year of practice. And I, I would do that every day. I like oral argument part. I've been to Supreme Court, U.S. Court of Appeals, Love it. And it's such a a necessary part of our practice because, look, judges are human. They're derailed by emotion. They can make errors, and they often do. And they will get into, you know, what level of burden of proof do you have? Because appellate work is very difficult in terms of success rates. So, but let's talk about maybe before we get into the steps of an appeal and what that looks like. Uh, for people that maybe have other lawyers now preserving your rights to appeal. That's huge. When we're not your lawyer, 
and we're going to step in and take care of your appeal. Maybe you're listening, you're watching, and you're not yet to trial, but you're getting ready or you're in the middle of it. So talk a little bit about preserving rights to appeal and what that really means. Yes. So this is incredibly important. Your appellate attorney, no matter how good we are, we are stuck with the record from the trial court. So what that means is the court speaks through its docket, its record and its entries. So everything must be set on the record. And I know many of you are thinking that a lot happens behind the scenes. A lot happens in chambers. Well, all of that must be preserved and set on the record. Something I like to do, which I'm not sure judges love, but they have to go with it when we do go on the record, I like to reiterate, yes, Your Honor, we spoke in chambers, A, B, C, and D. And I like to make sure it's on the record. If the judge doesn't want to do that, we can do a sidebar. But I just want to make sure the stress that, you know, your attorney might be the best litigator and maybe you come to us on appeal, but make sure that they say everything on the record. It's a number of clients come to me and say, my attorney read these stipulations on the record, but I didn't agree to them object. Do not let something go that you don't object. You know, that is number one is objections. Just say them out loud. Have your attorney say them. Obviously, you have to be silent. Make sure your attorney objects to things you don't agree to. If it goes on the record and you didn't object, it's there permanent black and white in the transcripts later. So we got to make sure that the Everything is said on the record in a docket. And if not, put it in a pleading, file it with the court. Hey, Your Honor, we went off record. A, B, and C, we're done. I'd like to put a motion out there to make sure we preserve this. Yeah. I mean, it's if it's not in the record, it didn't happen, right. even though it did. I mean, that's what the appellate court looks at, is they're constrained to, they've always said, the record before us. And that is they can't look to outside of anything else that's in that record, whether it's exhibits, re- evidence that's been admissible, testimony, things that are recorded. You always see, maybe on television, if you watch some of the the trials, you see a court reporter, they're typing, they're recording every spoken word that's done. And that's so critical to do it. In some courts, it's recorded by a recording device. It depends on the level of the court. But that is so important because especially how you frame it, I've made judges angry where we've been in chambers and they want to enter an order. And I say, well, in order to do so, judge, we're going to have to go out, sit in the courtroom and go on the record and put this on the judge. What do you mean? I'm like, well, yeah, you're you're actually doing something that we weren't here for. And so if you're going to do it, I want you to put it on the record because I will be appealing this. And then, of course, either things change or they do put it on the record and you preserve your rights. It's just, look, you're just defending your client and you have a right to ask for it to be on the record. And that's always the, I think clients always say, well, what goes on behind chambers? You know, it's this mystery. So let's just be transparent and put it on the record. If, if you're not afraid of the order that you're going to make, say it out loud. Absolutely. As you said, sometimes the judges don't want it on the record. And for me, that's the most important time to say it. If that court is not doing what is just, what is right, we got to make sure it's the next step. Yeah. And I think part of it is, you know, when I'm in trial, and especially if I happen, you know, we have the ability to have a second chair, if I have another attorney or a legal assistant or paralegal helping, I'm having them record or write down spot issues where I think that may be appealable. But I think what's key is to understand is, uh, for example, burdens of proof at trial. Make sure you've proved your case so that if the, if the ruling goes against you, you've presented every element that's required, for example, in a modification, you know, proving a change in circumstances, providing the income, making sure your exhibits are in. Just your trial lawyer just needs to make sure that they're making a record 
that is presentable that we can do something with in case there's a level of error, right? Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the process, kind of how appeals are started. And it's a very confusing, people hear about it a lot when, you know, in the news, you hear, oh, the Supreme Court this, the U.S. Court of Appeals that, but how does it really an appeal start? I mean, obviously you're in Ohio, I'm in Missouri, our rules are probably different. And people listening, obviously they're different. So uh, the timelines may be variable, but the idea and the notion is pretty general, but how do they begin? Yeah, absolutely. So how they generally begin is filing a notice of appeal with the lower court, with your trial court, letting them know that you can test the order. Now, the order, I just want to put this out there, has to be a final order. We're not talking temporary orders. We're not talking an interim order, a final order. That's what we can appeal. And I've, I have I am in Ohio and I am only licensed in Ohio, Washington, D.C., but I will say I have you know helped the appellate team in Michigan and Indiana and Illinois. And a lot of these, they, they do follow the same procedure. We we file that notice of appeal. We get a copy of the transcripts. If this somehow was uh, one of those where it just was motion practice and you waived your hearing, which I saw in a Michigan case, that's absolutely fine. And we just get a copy of the motions and what was said on the record and how you waived your hearing and making sure that that was all done correctly in case you wanted that hearing. Uh, And so we get that, we get the transcripts, we get all motions, we get a copy of your docket, we get all of that moving. And that's the number one step. And I I have clients all the time that want to add things. My attorney didn't present this, my attorney didn't present that. I'm okay to hear about it. But at the same time, I haven't found a jurisdiction in the United States yet that does let you supplement on appeal. All we're looking at is how the judge went wrong. If the judge didn't have it in front of them, they couldn't have gone wrong. So that's what we kind of start with, is what did the judge have directly in front of them? Exhibits, transcripts, motions, docket. And I think what's interesting, and you mentioned, if it's it's not on the record or if it's not before them, I mean, I've had cases where clients have come and said, look, this wasn't presented, and I have to have that conversation that it's not, now we're talking about perhaps malpractice, of your trial attorney rather than an appellate case. So it's a very fine line. I mean, we are almost this, what I call a kind of a post-action review. We're sitting here looking at and maybe critiquing what was done and then trying to figure out what the judge did, perhaps in error. And that's sometimes a very difficult thing. And, you know, we talk about filing a notice, you know, in certain states, there's required, you know, before you do that, you have to file a motion for a new trial or to modify or amend the judgment based on, you know, bringing it before the judge to give them an opportunity to correct plain error or something they may have missed. That's a, you know, what we call a condition precedent, something that's required to do before you have rights to appeal. But I think what's really important when we talk about notices is the timeline. Um, I can tell you some of them are tight. It could be 45 days, it could be 30 days. Um, and you just have to be you know, that clock starts to run probably before you even know that the judgment's been entered, especially in those cases where judges don't issue rulings from the bench. They don't do that here in St. Louis, Missouri. They never issue a ruling from the bench. You're going to get one in writing, and it's usually done, you know, you get it in the mail or you get electronically notified. Your lawyer does first. And now you're really dependent upon the lawyer notifying you and, and getting you a timely notice and saying, okay, here are your rights. Here's your deadline. Because you blow that deadline, it's a rarity, absent some disaster that you're going to get a notice, uh, leave to file it out of time, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. In Ohio, uh, we don't allow filing out of time unless it was a criminal sentence, which again, I'm not going to go too far into that. It's been years, but there is none for domestic relations, just like there's no ineffective assistance of counsel in Ohio for domestic relations. You have your choice of lawyer. It, it's they really put the the priority right there. You you don't get to appeal that issue. So you double you would definitely want to check with your state, with your state attorney, with your local attorney, and make sure what what you need to do to make sure that everything is correct and ready for appeal. Yeah. In fact, when I practiced in Georgia for about I don't know eighteen months, uh, during that time there were no rights to appeal automatically. You had zero out of family court. It was only by application to the Supreme Court, and they chose what ones they wanted. Well, you know, so um, it's called certiorari. It's a you know Latin term, but very interesting. So, as you know, the word of caution is if you're post judgment and it's happened, and you don't know whether or not you should appeal, you got to do something. Uh, and so, it's worthy of uh, a consultation with our appellate team here at Cordell. If you're you know within a certain time frame, do it, get it done. It's the best uh, part of uh, that hour you'll spend. It's a good investment. So let's talk about briefing. That is, what is it? You you know, clients hear the term briefing. What does that really mean on the appellate level? Yes. So the brief is... It's, it's your trial, essentially. There's not going to be cross-examination, direct examination in your appellate case. The brief is essentially that in writing. It's where your attorney is going to point out the errors of law, the background of facts of your case, the, the background of the law, and analyze it for the court. Where did the judgment entry go wrong? Where does the case law in my state say it should have gotten? Uh, if it was written there, right in a statute, your state's law, and you don't even have to go into case law, fantastic. But a lot of times your attorney is going to have to do some research into case law and show, at least in your jurisdiction, what goes on in cases similar to yours. It is rare to get a what we call a first instance uh, where this has not been tried at all in the appellate court. You have a brand new issue that's never happened, but that has happened, especially when COVID happened. We had a lot of, you know, these first instances coming up. But what has happened to you has probably happened to somebody else. And we can locate it and see if the court ruled in the same way. And we brief the court on that issue. It's a it's a written document. Every state has different deadlines. Every state has different page limits. But generally, I think it's around 20 to 30 pages. And it outlines absolutely everything. And that also needs to preserve for at least in Ohio. We do have one more court above the appellate court, and that is the Supreme Court of Ohio. And if you don't talk about it in the appellate court, you can't bring it up later. So this first brief is important. It needs to outline absolutely everything that has gone on in the case and every error you think exists. So yeah. it's very important to make sure we get all that written down. And cases of first impression or first instance, there you know they are unusual. I've had I was fortunate early in my career to have two of those. Uh, we went to Supreme Court on grandparents' rights. And when that was just starting to come about, the state of Washington was the first state to come down with the case. And then it started to domino effect. And then the Supreme Court took it up in the United States. And but it is so key. And it's, you know, it's not, it's unusual, but it happens. So here's maybe one of those. Oral arguments. I'm curious your opinion on oral arguments. I take the position and I, I get in arguments about this. I never ever submit on the briefs. I, I like the opportunity to tell my side to get myself the argument. Sometimes, you know, every judge is different. Some of them like to read it, analyze it and decide. Some want to hear it and get my interpretation. I just never waive oral argument ever. Um, even if the judge doesn't like oral argument, 
I'm like, with all due respect, I need an oral argument. I, I agree with you. I never waive oral argument myself. I love to show up to that court. In Ohio, you only get 15 minutes each, and it is 15 minutes well spent. It is a time for you to outline your case and to get the judge's opinion, because sometimes they'll ask you a question. They use that Socratic method. They know the answer. And if you know the answer, you know that you might win that appeal. But I also want to note, I've talked to the appellate team about this, and at least our, our Florida counsel came in and said it, oral argument is not even a guarantee in Florida. So so you want to double check and see if it is something you have a right to, something you can request. And, you know, if your state doesn't allow you to do it, it is not the end of the world. It is just 15 minutes of arguing. But, you know, if your state allows it, it is another chance for you to get in front of them and show you know what you're talking about and show your passion for the case. And sometimes your passion for the case can rub off on them. I've seen it before yeah. where they start to nod with you and you know you've got them. Yeah, and I get a, I get a chance to know by the level of questions, the type of questions kind of you kind of know where they're going it's somewhat like listening to the supreme court of the united states you kind of get an idea by the questions which side they're leaning um but i've got clients that often ask me well when do i get to speak doesn't happen nope <laughs> doesn't yeah, happen unfortunately unfortunately this is all for you know we're looking at the law you're looking for you know plain error you know against the weight of the evidence those are some of the burdens you kind of look at where you look, you know, those that they're looking for things that the judge did wrong, rulings that may have affected the outcome, bringing in evidence that they shouldn't have, considering evidence that they shouldn't have when doing that, or misapplying the law. Those are the standards. It's not really about an opportunity to relitigate what you just did. It's looking for just errors and omissions. So that's what's key. So kind of going on that, what are the outcomes? Kind of what can happen with an appeal, you know, in terms of after you've oral argued, what are you expecting? Yeah, absolutely. Here in Ohio, what happens most of the time is they're either going to remand it back to the trial court to fix an error, or they're going to just sustain, say, you know what, there was no errors. We don't agree. We agree with the trial court. Everything went fine. Uh, I have a lot of clients that ask me, but I didn't want it to go back to that trial judge. They're going to be mad at me now that I appealed them. Uh, I would say that's that's not generally the case. They understand if they made a mistake. You know, the appellate court did give them a slight slap on the wrist, but you know what, we get back in front of them and now they have to follow what the court said. If the court said they need a new trial because there was that big of an error, you get a new trial. If the court just said, you know, I feel that spousal support should have been considered and the court didn't consider it, that'll go back for a short hearing and the court will consider that one issue. So it can go back in a number of ways, but the Court of Appeals will tell them specifically what they need to look at and what they need to do. And I've actually had a case where after the Court of Appeals asked them to look at it, the trial court looked at it and we're back in the court of appeals because now that they looked at it, they came up with the wrong decision. So that can happen as well. You're you're not done once you win your first appeal. You know, it goes back to that trial court and we have to make sure the judge gets it right the second time. Yeah. You know, I always I tell people a lot, uh, lay people, people, the clients, and I always find whether it's appellate court, Supreme Court, U.S. Court of Appeals, they're always looking for a way to never reach the merits of your case. That's first and foremost. If they can find a way to never decide that's that makes them happy. Whether it's you made an error in briefing, you made an error in the filing, whether or not it's something that's not ripe, whether it's not an appealable argument, you may never reach the merits of your appeal because that's what they're first looking for is they never like to decide and they want to make sure that they can just get away from it if they can. But after appellate court, you have a chance in Ohio or other states like in Missouri for the state Supreme Court, do you know? 
Yes, and we do have that in Ohio. And this is similar to what you talked about in other states where it's that certiorari, where you don't have an absolute right like you do in the Ohio Appellate Court. In the Ohio Supreme Court, you have to have something of great significance and precedential value. So your attorney has to make that plea to them. And you and your attorney should talk about whether or not they believe that's present in your case. So as not to just, you know, waste your time, your money. Maybe you have some other post-conviction relief, you know, some other motion that we can do later. Later, we have different rules to to fix something that was done incorrectly. We have different ways to do things. But if you're going to go to that Supreme Court, at least in Ohio, you got to make sure it's it's of great significance or precedential value that other cases will be looking to your case to make sure it goes the correct way. And a lot of times the way that happens is uh, there are several districts in Ohio, just like voting districts. And if a different court of appeals decided something different from your court of appeals, the Supreme Court might want to take that under consideration because everybody's interpreting the law different. So that's kind of one of the best ways to make sure you get into the Supreme Court. Yeah, we have uh, three districts, Southern, Eastern and Western. And typically the Southern kind of goes rogue a lot. And so it's not unusual to have competing uh, appellate opinions interpreting the law. So that, as you suggest, the Supreme Court of the state has got to unify and for, you know, forever say this is the law and how we're going to interpret it. And we, you know, occasionally we're uh, you're seeing a transformation of a law. And so you're seeing whether it's a uh, regular circuit courts you know, with an interpretation of a new statute as it relates to continuation of child support, college education whatever is um, relocations. So those things are necessarily ripe, and you'll see those perhaps taken up by the Supreme Court as they continue the change in legislature issues, new rules, um, and new opinions in terms of their statutes. So I think that's always key. But again, the thing is, is that there are so many rights and avenues, albeit you have very small chances, especially like Missouri, I like to say somewhere in the single digit range is what the kind of the percentage of, a, of success, unless you have absolutely glaring error, misapplication of the law, um, then I think your chances increase substantially. Uh, but I, you know, generally that's kind of our standard here is in the single digit percentage uh, success rate for general rules of law. What are you, what are you seeing? So I've seen, I, I usually put it at about 10%. So pretty close to what you're saying. And I've, I've done probably over 60 appeals. And, uh, I would say, you know, I've, I've probably done a little over 10% here and there. It just really depends, but you are correct. You're, you're having a three judge panel decide that another judge made a mistake. So you're asking them to make a huge judgment for you. And sometimes, like I said, it is obvious there, there are mistakes out there. So I wouldn't discredit it right away, but you, you don't always have have a perfect appeal. And I want to note too, I mean, sometimes you're happy with the judgment and your your ex appeals it. And same thing, don't worry. There's there's not that much of a likelihood that they're going to get that appeal, but you want to make sure you fight it and you're the you're you're on the side to defend and make sure you say that the judge was correct in that instance. So I mean, there's never a guarantee either way that you'll win or that, you know, there's a hundred percent chance. No, I mean like like Scott said, about about 10% or so do actually pass through yeah. and there does have to be something that actually went wrong right and there may be chances i've done it where the ruling was completely in our favor the judge really liked our position went with everything they appealed i asked for attorney's fees on appeal and got them because the judge was angry that the other side decided to appeal with really no basis so that's another thing depends on the state every state's different the trial judge can issue that appellate or the uh, 
uh, fees decision while it's pending, which is somewhat unusual in some states where they can't do that. But here they can. So it's, again, something to ask your attorney about. I'm not sure about Ohio. In Ohio, we're allowed to, the trial court can issue anything that doesn't affect the merit of the appeal. So we would be able to issue an attorney's fees uh, issue. But if, you know, say if you're appealing spousal support, you can't go back to the trial court about your spousal support during the pendency of the case. But something that's tangential, like the attorney's fees, or if there is a different typo that's not what's being appealed, you you can go back to the trial court for that, at least in Ohio, but always, you know, consult your attorney in your state. Well, great. Danielle, thanks for joining today. Great stuff on appeals, something we haven't talked about. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, if you have questions, I know you're going to have more. We only had 15, 20 minutes to talk about appellate work. Reach out to Danielle and the team here at Cordell. If you have any questions about rights to appeal, whether or not it's right for you, whether your case warrants an appeal, it's certainly worth it. A lot of times it's something that you should do if the result wasn't what you wanted and it was supported by the evidence And so to have an attorney review it, reach out to us at cordellcordell.com, schedule an appointment, just have a consult. You can do it via Zoom or in person with our team across the country. So until next time, have a great week.